You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Elizabeth Anderson is here in the studio. Elizabeth, welcome. Welcome to WCBN. And thanks for coming down today. Thanks. It's really great to be here. Well, it's great to see you. And we're talking today about your book, Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It out with Princeton University Press, and soon out in paperback, too. So check the local bookstores. We've got the hardcover here with us today, but paperback out soon. Well, thanks for coming. Before we get started with a conversation, I'll read the short bio in the back of the book. Elizabeth Anderson is Arthur F. Thurnau Professor and John Dewey Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. She's the author of The Imperative of Integration and Value in Ethics and Economics. She lives in Ann Arbor. So let's fill in some more of your story, Elizabeth. If you don't mind. Sure. Okay. Um, so so you came to Ann Arbor. Your time at the University of Michigan started quite, quite oh, early in your career. <laughs> you know, I. it's pretty amazing because I was always a New Englander and just totally into the, like, Northeast, East Coast. Went to college in Pennsylvania. And I thought, yeah, I'm just going to stay in the Northeast. But then when I was on the job market, I got my – well, I was – earning my PhD at Harvard University. And I got this job interview out at University of Michigan. And believe it or not, that was my first time ever visiting the Midwest. It's like I'd been to California, you know, like a bi-coastal kind of thing, right? And I thought, okay, this Midwest thing, well, I'll just check it out. (laughs) And I arrive on campus for my campus interview uh, on an unbelievably bitter cold January day. And the chair of the department at the time, Alan Gibbard, just takes me on a little walk around campus. And he says, Liz, this is the largest collection of architecturally undistinguished buildings in North America. (laughs) (laughs) But the truth is, I just, I fell in love with the place. 
And it was obviously that Michigan was the place for me. I came here in 1987 and haven't left because it's just a fabulous university. It's intellectually so vibrant and so alive. And the thing that I really love most about University of Michigan is that everybody talks to everybody across all disciplines, across schools. And that's pretty much how I roll. So, you know, I'm reading economics and I'm talking to sociologists and, you know, hanging out in the law school and, you know, just just encountering all kinds of people with amazing ideas. And one of the greatest things here is that this place is so huge that, you know, if you're interested in something, there's somebody who's an expert here on it and you can just drop them an email and open up a conversation and learn things. So it's a fabulous place and I'm never leaving. This is it for me. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank goodness. Thank goodness. It's it's so good. It's so good to meet you. So how did those I like those ideas, like dropping someone an email when you want to talk about, you know, learn something or get like get on the trail of something else when you're on like the trail of an idea or so? How did that inform uh, your your latest book here, Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It? Well, you know, I'll tell you the story of uh, one of my co-teachers, uh, Frank Thompson, it has both a philosophy PhD and an econ PhD. And his story is amazing because he was a philosophy, he, he's older than me, and he got a philosophy PhD at Harvard, just like me, studied with John Rawls. Then he went off uh, and became a labor union organizer. He was part of the Teamsters, so first he had to learn to drive one of these gigantic trucks, <laughs> get his license, and, and and then of course he's organizing people. And you might know that the, that the Teamsters uh, were a troubled and rather corrupt organization, but there was a part of the Teamsters called the Teamsters for Democratic Union, right? Who were very active, and he was part of that. But then he decided to to go back to school and study economics. And lo and behold, I was already here at University of Michigan and very interested in economic issues. And here at Michigan to get a PhD, you need a cognate advisor from outside your department. So he's in the econ department and he asked me to be part of his dissertation committee. So I was on his dissertation committee and uh, <laughs> he wrote a fabulous dissertation but this intersection between philosophy and economics was very intriguing. We ended up teaching a course together twice on global justice. But I also learned about unions from him. And, you know, he he's a really fabulous guy. So it's like a characteristic way in which people, you know, you meet other people and get to know what they're up to and learn a lot. And that's also was the inspiration then. Well, actually, two lectures that you gave for at at Princeton was yes, it so for the, the for private government. But that seems like was that when the ideas were sort of all like the formulated, like starting. The I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I, I do think that my conversations with him were super useful. But I've actually been really interested in ideas about work ever since undergraduate days. Well, because because of your job when you were as an undergraduate, your job at the bank is yes, exactly. So. Um, <clears throat> I have to roll back even a little bit earlier, even okay. to high school. Because Great. <laughs> when I was in when I was in high school, um, 
I was like super libertarian. <laughs> Growing up in a household which was just drenched with libertarian, uh, you know, reading and stuff. So I'm reading all this stuff and I think, yeah, free markets, way to go. And um, I, you know, I'm in high school and I take this course, a political science course in high school, and I'm arguing with a professor who is a socialist, right? And I'm <laughs> saying free markets, rah, rah, <laughs> right? And we'd argue all the time. And, and then I go to college and, and for a summer job, I just, I, I went with a friend of mine um, to live uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I'm looking for a summer job. And I just pick up this job at a bank. And in those days, bouncing checks was a manual operation, and the bookkeepers of the bank would do this. So there was a small group of bookkeepers, and every day we'd be given all the bounced checks where there weren't sufficient funds in the account, and we'd have to process these checks because they didn't, they didn't have computers to do that in those days. It was a completely manual operation. You're handling physical paper checks. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> you'd have a supervisor come around, and he would make the judgments like, who who would get paid? Who would have their account paid even though they didn't have the money? Who would get charged or not? You know, a fee for this for putting in a bounce check. And it wasn't like today where you could automatically tie your account to a line of credit. They didn't even do that in those days. It was totally a personal decision. And I noticed these patterns showing up. Most businesses have two accounts. They have a payroll account and then they have account for all their other expenses. And what I noticed is that if a business was always chronically short on funds, they would always short the paychecks. So these poor workers who had put in a full week's work or two weeks work would deposit their paycheck. And of course, they'd have to be then writing checks to pay their rent and utilities and stuff. They were the ones whose checks were bouncing, whereas the suppliers, their checks were going through because it's two segregated accounts. And I'm thinking, what of these poor workers? Because those workers, they would always get charged a fine and their checks would never be paid, whereas richer people, their checks would be paid and they wouldn't be given a fine. And I'm thinking, who's really getting ripped off here? And that kind of opened my eyes to how most workers get treated and how unjust it is because now they're paying double fines because it's also the case not only did their paycheck bounce but then any checks they wrote on their account also bounces so the fees are piling up and the bank is making lots of money from this and these poor workers now maybe face eviction or you know fines on their mortgage, all kinds of problems arise in their lives that just multiply the harm and nobody was caring about them. So that was, that really kind of motivated me to think more about work and how, how, how work is really not that great for people, uh, in our free market system. And those concerns have carried through really a lot of my, uh, thinking up to the present day. Well, because listening to you tell this story, Elizabeth, it's, it's not a lot also has changed. Like it might be different. It might not be that there's these paper checks and there's not someone strolling the aisle making, but that it seems like these decisions are, are even more uh, systemic or institutionalized oh, absolutely. And where, where workers or poorer people are, 
are punished and You're, other people not. You are totally right about that. If anything, I think conditions for many workers in the bottom half uh, have really gotten significantly worse. So here's one indication of that. Um, the scale of wage theft in the United States exceeds the total amount of all other theft in the country. So can you define what wage theft is? That's when a worker puts in their hours and doesn't get paid. And often this happens on overtime, like they're forced to clock out, but they still have to continue working. But because they've clocked out, there's no documentation that they're actually putting in extra hours. And so, and this is something that's like, a, like if, if there was something on this scale of theft going on in any, it would be criminal. And this, this is criminal. Well, actually... Technically, I suppose it is criminal, but usually it's only treated as a civil case. So, you know, workers could claim back pay, but you don't actually throw the employer who's been stealing these wages into into prison for that. Right, right. And how how do probably many of the people who are affected by this, how do they afford uh, a lawyer or time off or have the legal knowledge or access to expertise to be able to have any sort of recourse. In fact, it's even worse than that because a lot of workers, as a condition of getting a job, had to sign a mandatory arbitration contract. So they have to bring every complaint about their employer to an arbitrator who's paid by the employer by, right. and hence who has a conflict of interest to render a judgment against them. I feel like if I say anything, Elizabeth, you're going to be like, in fact, T, it's even worse than that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, we've got a good, you know, we've got the rest of the hour. So let's go there. Okay. <laughs> um, today on the program, Elizabeth Anderson is here. Private government, how employers rule our lives and why we don't talk about it. The book on the table with us. Um, we'll take a short break and we'll be back. We've got Steph behind the glass. We'll be back. Soon as you're born, they make you feel small by giving you no time instead of it all till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all. A working class hero is something to be. Working class hero is something to be They hurt you at home and they hit you at school Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. Today in the studio, uh, Michigan's own Elizabeth Anderson is here. The book on the table with us, Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. Um, well, today we're going to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks for picking the songs for today's program, too, Elizabeth. Um, sure. Yeah. So, so that one was. So why that one? Why that John Lennon song? So um, <clears throat> I think it harkens back to an era where uh, the working class was uh, more assertive. And um, 
there were a lot of strikes back then. Like today, there's a few strikes going on. Um, but in fact, labor has been disempowered and uh, intimidated into acting out and speaking out. Uh, but back when Lenin was singing, it was a different scene altogether. And workers were actually on strike a lot. In this country, in, in the, the U.S., as well as in, in Britain? Absolutely. Yeah. It was a different scene altogether. Um, and a lot of this had to do with the fact that workers had much more powerful unions in those days. I remember as a kid um, turning on the TV news, and when they covered business issues that affected workers, they would always have a labor union representative speaking. And today, you hardly ever see that on the news now. It's very rare. But back then, they took for granted, of course, you get the business side and then you get the labor side. The labor side. side. Well, and that's been gradually, like, what would you say since, well, the the late 70s being dismantled? Um, Yeah. In fact, labor unions have been, labor union rates peaked in the late 1940s, and they've been on a steady decline ever since. Uh, But a really accelerated decline in in the past few decades so now they represent, oh, around 6% of private sector workers and maybe 11% when you count in the, the public sector. And those workers. numbers used to be vastly different in the 40s, the 50s. Oh, yeah. So. You would have like, you know, 35% coverage. That's pretty substantial. So so how is that? Like, because I, I can I think back to like right to work. That seems like one of the most recent, um, I don't know, examples of using... I don't know, rhetoric to, to fool people into thinking. That- well, actually, I'm, it's interesting that you point to the right to work movement, because, in fact, that's been going on for decades and decades. Oh, OK. And uh, in fact, the history of this is really fascinating because it shows something really, really important about the American scene. And that's the role of race in splitting the labor movement. So right to work was actually originally back in like the 40s a, uh, an issue that black workers had because they were excluded from all white unions. So they wanted the right to work without having to join a union because the union was discriminating against them. <laughs> and that uh, that idea, though, there are even some famous lawsuits involving this. Um, and labor unions back then were pretty slow on the uptake. They were, a lot of them were operating as a kind of system of opportunity hoarding for white workers Mm -hmm. to, you know, hoard, hoard the good jobs. Yes. Now, eventually there were a lot of struggles over this, but eventually the unions figured out that there was no way for the labor movement to succeed without including blacks. So during the civil rights movement, actually a lot of unions became pretty progressive over the issue because they realized to survive, you have to bring in all workers. Otherwise, who's going to break your strike? (laughs) Um, So there were major changes and then right to work became really the call of, you know, anti-union forces uh, to break the solidarity of workers and uh, open up uh, to free riding. So why do you think the American workers' psyche was even open to having that solidarity broken apart, challenged? So that's a really interesting question. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it comes from the workers. There was an awful lot of intimidation um, 
and the the way the pressure you, from employers and and this, yeah. So an important feature of the way union organization works in the United States is that employers have the right to interfere in elections. And uh, even though technically it's illegal for employers to threaten to close a plant if it gets organized, in reality, that happens all the time. Uh, and that intimidates a lot of workers. Yeah. Well, because you have the day you have your responsibilities that you have to your duties, like to people who depend on you. Yep. Yourself. Even. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And going on strike is really costly. And if there there aren't other opportunities, exactly. Yes. So when the labor market uh, gets worse, it's it's much harder to bear up under the pressure. Yeah, because it's it's not uncommon to have this feeling like you're you're lucky to have a job. Precisely, and indeed today people say, well, you should be grateful to your employer for offering any hours at all. Even even in the today's supposed full employment uh, uh, condition, the reality is there's massive amounts of underemployment because we've entered um, a system in which workers get irregular hours and they don't get full-time hours. There's massive underemployment, so they're desperate just to get the hours that, uh, uh, that the employer offers them to barely survive. And so... What is it do you think about like the American mentality? So I think I misspoke earlier when I was like, why did the workers allow themselves to be <laughs> broken apart like so easily or so? I think it's it's obviously not the workers fault. Um, it's what's happening in our, our broader society that makes it uh, like like are we believing in these foundation myths of our country that no longer hold true about free markets yes. or about the, what what it means to be free and have a free market right so i do think that um one of the deficiencies that we face in the united states is in our political discourse we don't have a well developed way of talking about uh how workers are abused at work. Instead, what politicians say and what po what's frequent in popular discourse is that, oh, well, we live in free markets. This is freedom of contract. If you don't like the job, you can always quit and find a different job. But that's cavalier. It's, it's, a, it's, it's uninformed seemingly from it's, it seems like only people can say that who haven't experienced what it's like to be a worker on multiple levels across U.S. society. I agree completely. It is speaking the language of privilege and people who are in secure positions and they feel that they've earned it. And so they think that anyone who's less advantaged somehow maybe isn't a good worker or something and deserve whatever awful fate is dealt out to them. So with this, this, I'm trying to think, uh, with this under like how how is this mindset then something that we can change because i feel like it's important to acknowledge it mm -hmm. um and i think that's even why you titled your book the way you did <laughs> private government how employers rule our lives and then in parentheses and why we don't talk about it trying to open up discourse yep but i, I and it seems hmm 
how how do we do that? Because it seems like it's getting increasingly more difficult to have a a public discourse and have differing opinions and where people can actually hear each other. And I listen. agree. We do have. It is true that we're, we've entered a, a phase of politics where it's really hard for people to talk across identity lines. Um, <clears throat> however, most of the identities that are the source of these difficulties are things like race and gender and ethnicity. Yeah. Most Americans work and have experience of work. And it is true there are some ultra-privileged workers. But in fact, most workers in America uh, can relate to negative experiences at work, even if, they're, even if they're somewhat privileged. So just to give you an example, my husband's a doctor. He works at Henry Ford um, Health System at a clinic in Dearborn. Um, and he feels... He feels uncomfortable when his employer asks him to contribute to their political action campaign. He knows that his contributions are monitored, but he doesn't particularly favor political action campaigns by giant healthcare organizations who are just trying to maximize their revenues. He does. He thinks that the healthcare system has been corrupted by the endless quest for more money. Um, and that it's undermining his ability to treat his patients and take care of them. So he really doesn't side with the political action committee of his employer. And actually, there's millions and millions of middle class professional managerial workers who face this kind of pressure to align with their bosses' mm. uh, political priorities, even if they disagree with them. So that's a case of employer intimidation, even for fairly privileged workers. And so he's asked to contribute. So yes. it's like phrased that way. And yet these contributions are monitored. So there would be some, it feels it's like something. totally known who contributes. Yeah. Now, I don't think anything, I don't think he's been punished at work for not contributing. But of course, there's always that question in your mind especially if you speak out against certain revenue maximizing strategies as my husband has, right? <laughs> um, you know, you wonder what, at what point would you be crossing the line? So there's always that anxiety there. It, it seems like workers are having, I, I don't know. It feel, it almost feels like workers are being told a particular story and maybe not having access to this different way of thinking about what their possibilities as a worker or their value as a worker could be. Um, yes. So one of the things that's happened is a general increase in how precarious uh, the position of workers are at work. Um, and this is seen in the data, like just the percentage of, of working families who are working in poverty vastly exceeds most rich countries in the world. I'm just thinking about like American workers are far more likely to be poor even while they're working than workers in the rich countries of Europe. Um, so yeah, they're definitely not being valued, but, but my book is fundamentally about trying to give uh, 
give us a way to talk about what's happening to workers at work, um, to reorient the discourse we use um, to clarify the injustices that are taking place. And the key move that I'm making is to say the workplace is not actually a place of free markets. The workplace is a government. It's a form of government. You've got a hierarchy. You've got bosses. You have people issuing orders. You're expected to obey. That sounds to me like a government. (laughs) So why don't we talk about the workplace as a type of government? And then we could ask, um, well, every government has a constitution. And what is the constitution of the American workplace? By and large, it's a dictatorship. Now we have a way to talk about why workers are oppressed at work, because everybody knows that dictators do not cut a very good deal with the people they rule and often abuse them pretty seriously. Elizabeth Anderson, I'm so glad you're here today on the program. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back today. uh, Private government, how employers rule our lives and why we don't talk about it. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We'll be back for more with Elizabeth Anderson in a moment. Stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from nine to five. Working nine to five. Welcome back to Living Writers. Uh, I hope everyone was just singing along. I know I was. <laughs> Elizabeth Anderson here today on the program, Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. Um, out with the university, uh, Princeton University Press. Elizabeth, um, thanks for picking the song. What, when did you first hear that song? What, what kind of meaning does... Uh, you know, that you- was ages ago. I don't <laughs> even remember. Probably when it first came out. <laughs> In the 80s, right? Yeah, When yeah. the film came out? Yeah, yeah. Potentially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, one of the things I really love about it is highlighting women's work. 
You know, our image of the working class is always of men. But, you know, women are out there working, too. And that, of course, was a big trend um, in the in the 70s and 80s. Women going to work and then facing, well, all kinds of problems like sexual harassment and things like that. And, of course, we always have to keep in mind that the move of women to work was mostly white women because black women have always been expected to work. Immigrant women, Latino women, um, uh, but that was an important kind of blending of, of feminist consciousness and working class consciousness during that era in, in the 70s and 80s. And Dolly Parton just really captures that. She Thank got you. you where they want you, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. They just use your mind and never give you credit. Yep, exactly. Yep. Not getting credit. And that is such an important line. I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because if you look at the why women are dropping out of high tech, Women engineers, they're coding. Maybe they're at fancy places like Google or Apple. What is, why are they dropping out at such high rates? And if you actually interview these very talented female engineers, there is sexual harassment, but that is not the main reason. The main reason is that they're not being given credit for their work, that men jump in and claim credit for the very talented work that women are doing. And so then they're grabbing promotions and raises and recognition. And the women are just expected to kind of take it and sit back there being, you know, demure or whatever, uh, and accept that kind of treatment. And, and, and women engineers are saying, no, this is not, you know, this is how I'm going to be treated where they won't respect my contributions in my mind, well, forget about it. I'm going to do something else. And what are they doing? Do Is there any data on that or what's I happening? I actually don't know what they're doing. Yeah. That's a great question. And I don't know where they've landed. Hopefully changing something for the better. I because hope so. Maybe at a certain point you feel like you can't change the place where you are, the workplace where you are. Exactly. As like if you're outnumbered. Um, well, numbers are, are really, really key. So we do know that it takes a critical mass uh, uh, to change the culture of a place. Just having token numbers of women doesn't really do it. Then women are expected to just go along with whatever toxic culture exists. You need a critical mass to change things. The same, same is true for changing racial harassment and racial contempt at work. You need a critical yes. mass. Yes. This also reminds me too, the, of the, the pay difference as well. That's still present between the gender. Yes. Yes. Uh, and certainly in high tech, you can see that there's a, a lot of discrimination just builds on past discrimination. So when women are bargaining for wages, they're asked what their previous salary was. So if they ever suffered disc discrimination in the past, it just carries forward. I'm shaking my head here. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> before we go any further, before we jump back into conversation, Elizabeth, let's, uh, let's hear um, part of private government. Um, do you mind? Oh, not at all. I actually... Uh, copy to selection here. So this is coming right out of the beginning of the book. Consider some facts about how employers today control their workers. 
Walmart prohibits employees from exchanging casual remarks while on duty, calling this time theft. Apple inspects the personal belongings of their retail workers, who lose up to a half hour of unpaid time every day as they wait in line to be searched. Tyson prevents its poultry workers from using the bathroom. Some have been forced to urinate on themselves while their supervisors mock them. About half of U.S. employees have been subject to suspicionless drug screening by their employers. Millions are pressured by their employers to support particular political causes or candidates. If the U.S. government imposed such regulations on us, we would rightly protest that our constitutional rights were being violated. But American workers have no such rights against their bosses. Even speaking out against such constraints can get them fired. So most keep silent. American public discourse is also mostly silent about the regulations employers impose on their workers. We have the language of fairness and distributive justice to talk about low wages and inadequate benefits. We know how to talk about the fight for $15, whatever side of this issue we are on. But we don't have good ways to talk about the way bosses rule workers' lives. Instead, we talk as if workers aren't ruled by their bosses. We're told that unregulated markets make us free and that the only threat to our liberties is the state. We're told that the market, in the market, all transactions are voluntary. We are told that since workers freely enter and exit the labor contract, they are perfectly free under it. That bosses have no more authority over their workers than customers have over their grocer. Labor, market, labor movement activists have long argued that this is wrong. In ordinary markets, a vendor can sell their product to a buyer, and once the transaction is complete, each walks away as free from the other as before. But labor markets are different. When workers sell their labor to an employer, they have to hand themselves over to their boss, who then gets to order them around. The labor contract, instead of leaving the seller as free as before, puts the seller under the authority of their boss. Since the decline of the labor movement, however, we don't have effective ways to talk about this fact and hence about what kinds of authority bosses should and shouldn't have over their workers. This book aims to answer two questions. First, why do we talk as if workers are free at work and that the only threats to individual liberty come from the state? And second, what would be a better way to talk about the ways employers constrain workers' lives which can open up discussion about how the workplace could be designed to be more responsive to workers' interests. Thanks, Elizabeth. So that really lays it out there, what you're going to do yeah. in private government. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then there's responses from four contributors. Yes. Um, what, what was the... What, why did you structure it like that? Oh, so that was just a structure of the Tanner Lectures. I originally answered these two questions that I posed at the end of my reading in the form of two lectures, Tanner Lectures and Human Values, that I gave at Princeton University. And the way Princeton structures the Tanner Lectures is they also invite um, commentators to criticize the lectures and that's what happened then. And I had an opportunity to reply orally, uh, but then I sat down and wrote more formal replies for the book. So the book actually composed two lectures, four critiques, and my replies 
to my critics. What's that like thinking on your feet when you're in the lecture space? Oh, it's totally a blast. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, you know, that's philosophy is an argumentative discipline. Right. That's how we that's that's how we roll. And so, you know, getting criticisms from all sides and responding to them, that's that's good. It's fun. Um, I think I was reading the the article that you had in, I think it's Vox, mm-hmm. was I? Um, and I, I was thinking about your way of writing and how by the end it's ramping up. So it's actually, I feel it's, it's Vox, how bosses are literally like dictators. Americans think they live in a democracy, but their workplaces are small tyrannies. Um, and this is in the big idea of section. And this is this is you writing this piece, Elizabeth. Um, and by the the end of it, I'm like underlining everything, exclamation marks. I wrote like a large boo down the column of one side when you were actually noting the Trump administration's Labor Department is working to roll back the Obama administration's expansion of overtime pay um, and, 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 and several other things. Um, uh, so let's talk though so, so your great argument uh, like your the argument is clear i guess is what i would say um so let's talk about maybe strengthening labor unions cuz yeah. these are some of what you're saying what we can do um you also mentioned that a backlash in society after there has been progress made is often common and maybe that's what we're experiencing right now in the culture. Yes. So actually, this is part of of, uh, this book is part of a really large project I have on the history of egalitarianism going all the way back to our hunter-gatherer ancestors. So this is big, big history. And the levelers. The levelers in the 17th century are I cover in private government. Um, So yeah, so I've jumped ahead head to the 17th century in this book and then I cover 17th up to the 21st century to our current time um, but we see this repeatedly that egalitarian social movements get a lot of gains in bursts of energy and then reaction tries to claw those gains back that's sort of a very repeated pattern uh, people in power don't like losing their privileges so they They organize and claw a lot of them back. And we've been in clawback uh, uh, mode for a number of decades. I think the critical turning point for the American worker was the mid-70s, around 74, is where you see the the condition of American workers uh, seriously going downhill. So so if we're thinking also about like the Reagan years as well as being definitely damaging to the American worker... Yes, exactly. Well, Reagan, of course, famously unleashed anti-union strategies against the uh, air traffic controllers. Now they did; they were they their strike was illegal, but they were protesting extremely stressful conditions that were posing dangers uh, uh, to passengers, the American public, the American public. Uh, and rather than addressing their concerns, he fired them all. And that was a signal, sent an important signal, I think, to private sector businesses that uh, 
it was open season on unions. They started hiring extremely aggressive lawyers to uh, drive unions out, break unions, or, or keep them out if they tried to organize. Yeah, because you could try and imagine at that point then taking your case like to the Supreme Court when one of the, the, the branches of the U.S. government has already sent a clear signal. Yeah. Well, they, and in fact, the anti-union uh, forces devised a number of very effective legal techniques for uh, stopping unions in their tracks. And unions didn't really figure out much of a way to counteract it. And so that's why you see precipitous drops of uh, union representation in the private sector. The public sector has uh, been less hostile to unions. So you see almost twice the representation of, of unions in the public sector than in the private. You can see that directly in universities. It's, it's universities, private ones like Yale and Harvard that have always been extremely hostile to union activity, whereas public universities like University of Michigan, yeah, we got unions. What's mm -hmm. the problem? It's great for workers, and it actually uh, helps the university function and be decent. Yes. Let's take a short break. We'll be back. Today on the program, Elizabeth Anderson is here. Private government, how employers rule our lives and why we don't talk about it. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. She rises, woman's work is never done, and it's not because she doesn't try, she's fighting a battle with no one on her side. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Elizabeth Anderson is here. Private government, how employers rule our lives and why we don't talk about it. Um, we've been talking this hour about how um, workplaces and in, in the American landscape are, are often um, private governments onto, them, onto themselves, um, governments without representation for the workers involved in their own destinies uh, for the most part, uh, uh, small tyrannies. We've been talking about strengthening labor unions as something we need to do. And there's another piece to this uh, uh, collective action that our country could start thinking about. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, let's talk about co-determination. Yes. So the framework of the book points out that Firms are little governments, and then you can ask about what the constitution of that government is. In the United States, under the default rule of employment at will, which allows the boss to fire the worker for any or no reason at all, um, you've got dictatorship. But we can look at alternative constitutions that have been designed for the workplace in other countries in the world. And I think one of the most interesting models 
of an alternative constitution has been developed in Germany and spread in several other European countries. It's called co-determination. Under co-determination, the management of the shop floor and of the corporation at large is joint between the workers and representatives of the shareholders. So that imagines a kind of cooperative model of management where workers and capital owners or their representatives are trying to work together and find win-win solutions to problems. This has been an enormously successful model in Germany. Uh, and I want to stress that co-determination is fundamentally not about uh, wages and benefits. That's taken care of by labor unions who are outside of the co-determination framework. Um, so bargaining over wages and benefits happens at a different level. Unions take care of that because wages and benefits, there's a, it's more of an inherently adversarial aspect to that. You're deciding how to divide a pie, a revenue pie. Um, Co-determination is really about work processes, about how workers are treated uh, while they're at work. Like, do they have bathroom rights and what kinds of breaks can they get? Um, it's about workers being able to organize work processes in such a way that they enjoy respect and dignity at work, that they're not, that they have decent conditions, safe conditions, that they're not going to get sick because of particulates in the air, that they're not driven at a relentless pace that's exhausting, that they can actually be work at a human pace, uh, maybe have more interesting work. It's those issues about the content of work and the relations of people at work that drive um, the concerns uh, of the work councils, which are organized at, at the shop floor and in which workers have a built-in guaranteed say about the conditions under which they work. And that's a collective say because they elect the members of the works council who represent the workers at that level. I think that's a very promising model. And I think the United States, you know, it, we would do well to experiment with this. A great thing about it is you don't have to win a labor union organization election in order to get representation under German law. Workers get it automatically. As soon as the firm has five or more employees, they get a works council. They have to grow a little bit bigger to have representation, you know, uh, at the board level, at the highest level of government. Um, <clears throat> but at, at, at the shop floor level, even a very small firm has to listen carefully to the workers. And so, and when you're saying shop floor, um, Elizabeth, is that like what what areas of the workplace? Um, it could be any kind of thing. Like I'm not a, just talking. A small architectural firm it uh, could be or anything. a large. Yeah. So it's not. Any uh, workplace. It could be white collar, pink collar, manufacturing, retail, restaurant. It doesn't matter. Any kind of enterprise has to listen to the workers' views of how the work process should be organized. That seems to make a lot of sense. And Senator Warren 
right now has got a bill coming up, does she? Yeah. So Elizabeth Warren, I think, is way ahead of other uh, presidential candidates on this issue. Uh, How so? Well, because she actually has crafted a bill um, to guarantee uh, co-determination for the larger corporations. Now, she's not working at five or more employees, but I think her threshold is 500. Is that right? Wow. Well, then that's that's introducing it to see how it works at this level. Yeah. And maybe making some of the larger corporations more accountable. Exactly. Yes. And it's easier to introduce it starting starting with the big corporations. <laughs> Harder to do it at a small scale. But yeah, you I think it's a great way to experiment with how this might work in an American context to start with the big corporations. They have more institutional capacity to to sustain these kinds of organizations. We'll see how it works and then we could we could spread the model depending on what we find out. So for example, this could apply to Amazon. Yes, easily. Yes, Apple, all the all the big tech companies, Facebook, um, but all kinds of places that aren't so fancy either. Think about, you know, Tyson chickens, where they're slaughtering chickens. This is bloody, awful, dangerous, cold work. Workers there really need a voice about yes. how the work process goes because it's really dangerous and uncomfortable for them. And it's undignified because they're not even allowed to use the bathroom. Just think about this. It's shocking. Can you imagine holding it in for eight hours? I, it, it's just appalling. Um, in fact, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration has ruled finally a few years ago that uh, every workplace has to have a bathroom, but they failed to require that the bathroom door be unlocked and that workers actually have the right to use it. So that's just another struggle. Whereas workers Wait, in Europe, so just to clarify, yeah. th- is then it locked for the duration of a workday or what's for, the... For the shift, yeah, eight but... hours. Yeah, it's pretty insane, isn't it? Just think about how appalling that is. Well, it just doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense because the intention behind what the law was should be clear. Well, yes, but... But here's an example of a tyrannical Tyr- workplace. Private government. Private government, of the exactly. This is what private government looks like, right? It's tyrannical uh, and uh, they defy the regulations. And the truth is that OSHA is not a very powerful agency. Uh, it has very weak enforcement powers. It can't be everywhere. It's a very tiny agency. So that's what you get. So, so if people are interested in in supporting co-determination in this, it kind of almost as an experimental level for like companies that have over five hundred workers or more. Mm-hmm. Um, which they do. How can they support Senator Warren's bill? What? Well, I think everybody should be on their phones, calling their senator or representative, and asking them to get on board Warren's bill. She's a really smart policy wonk. She's got great ideas. She's building on a model with known successes in Germany and other countries. This is not taking a crazy risk. Uh, And it will. The truth is, is that American workers have no idea how badly off they are compared to so many workers in Europe that enjoy much better, more dignified, freer conditions at work. 
And American workers deserve that, too. And then the if the people are more if if American workers have dignity, have autonomy, um, the free market can actually be a free market. It won't be a well, lie of a free exactly. market. Exactly. And this is this is actually Warren's message that you don't have to destroy the market. Uh-uh. You what you do is you put in place institutions that enable it to work for everybody. And that that's basically her message. I'm not saying I'm necessarily going to be voting for Warren. I you know have to look over the whole field to decide. Uh, but boy, she really is talking smart. There. And she's doing good work now. And that's what we need to do. We just yeah. have to keep chipping away yeah. and doing and the work that's there in front of us, the people who are starting it. Mm-hmm. Go with them. Support them. Absolutely. Yes. Come back anytime, Elizabeth Anderson, to talk. Would oh, it's love a pleasure. to have you. <laughs> um, the new book that well, you're working on now, the new project, Egalitarianism, is that ah, what you Well, your... I have multiple volumes. And so what I'm currently working on uh, is the Seeley Lectures, which I'm giving at Cambridge University this May. The Seeley Lectures are all about the work ethic, <laughs> the Protestant work ethic, what it was back in the mid-17th century and what it is today. So stay tuned for more. Yep. Thank you for being on the program today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Steph for engineering. Uh, thanks to Frank Uli for post-production work. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
Welcome back to the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Charlie Brigham. Alongside me, my co-hosts Andy Miller and Zach Linfield. How are you guys doing today? I'm all right, man. How about you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good myself. Uh, Miller, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Been trapped in my room for the last week, but we're all, we're all chilling here. Doing the DSR from your bed as usual? Yes, sir. So just getting right into things. Uh, really the only thing going on of major importance right now is the NFL. Uh, this past weekend, the, both the NFC and AFC championship games happened. We have our Super Bowl matchup set. The Kansas City Chiefs are going to be going up against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tom Brady. Uh, we can start with this NFC game first. Miller, you want to give us your thoughts? I mean, the Patriots are a better – Patriots, Wow. Freudian slip right there. Uh, the Buccaneers are just a better – like, they're a better-made team. They have zero flaws on their whole roster. And the Packers have flaws. The Bucks ran it when they had to. They threw those easy completions they had to, and the Packers were probably a little bit too aggressive on defense when it came down to it. It's just a bad game. Uh, congratulations to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tom Brady and no, 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 but – it's been interesting, to say the least. Yeah, I'm sure WCBN's own Adam Bressler was been riding high all weekend, him and his Tom Brady fandom. Zach, what were your thoughts about the game? Uh, I, As someone who is much more of an NFC guy than an AFC guy, being a faithful Lions fan, uh, RIP to me, I suppose, um, I'm very glad the Packers lost just because of the rivalry between Detroit and Green Bay, which doesn't even seem to be much of a rivalry anymore. 